This is a podcast from Partnerships for Wellbeing. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Ways to Wellbeing, coming to you from Partnerships for Wellbeing here in Inverness. I'm Jeff Sizinski, and my guest this time around is a man I've never met but with whom I suspect I'm going to have a lot in common, namely because of an unwelcome health surprise. Like me, Paul Roebuck was in his 50s when he went to the dentist complaining about a sore tongue, and, like me, he eventually discovered things were, well, a little more serious than he had imagined. And also, like me, Paul had and still has a job that relies on his ability to communicate. In my case, I worked in radio. In his case, he's a behavioural psychotherapist. Paul Roebuck joins me now on Ways to Wellbeing. And uh, Paul, I first discovered your story on Facebook in a series of videos called Mouth Cancer Journey. And am I right in saying it was that trip to the dentist where that journey began? It it was in many ways. It, It actually started on the 4th of April 2017. I was in Las Vegas, in a top-floor room, overlooking the beautiful Bellagio fountain. And because I was having a break and having a rest, I became a little bit more self-aware of my health and well-being. I noticed I had some blood in my mouth. I'd had it before, and I'd not paid much attention to it. But on that day, I decided I needed to go and talk to a dentist. So made an appointment with a dentist. A few weeks later, turned up, sat in her chair, She opened my mouth, took one look in my mouth and the look of horror in her face. I could see it in her eyes, whatever she saw in my mouth and my tongue was a real mess, but I adapted to and got used to it. So that's very much where the story started. She referred me on for a first of several consultations and that's where the story began. And when I started looking at your videos, I noticed it was almost like a roller coaster where you were getting... Oh, well, ambiguous diagnosis from time to time, not quite sure what it was. There was moments of relief that you seemed to be given the all clear, and then eventually the truth emerged. Yeah, that's very much how it unfolded. I I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about the human mind, and the human mind is a very powerful thing, but in many respects it's also quite a weak thing because what I, what they actually said and what I heard were two different things at those early consultations, what they actually said was, we cannot conclude that this is cancer. So I heard that as, it's not cancer. Whereas what they were saying was, we can neither confirm nor deny that it's cancer. But as I said, my mind said, well, go with the favourable outcome. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be okay. So that's what you saw in some of those early videos that, quite positive outlook, I'm going to get through this, I'm strong, I'll overcome it, you know, it's it's all going to be okay at the end of the day. And lo and behold, as those inspections and the investigations unfolded, that wasn't actually the case. What were you eventually told? I was told on the 10th of August, uh, again, I went, I went for a, a separate meeting with a separate consultant in a bigger hospital, one of the teaching hospitals, Coventry, uh, I got a message the evening before saying, Mr. Robert, we'd like you to come in tomorrow to meet with the consultant. Um, he's going on holiday tomorrow evening, so he'd like to see you before he leaves. So I 
told a friend and told my wife. My wife was out of the country at the time. So I told a friend and said, I'll come with you. And I said, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So I went to that meeting with the expectation that because he's going on holiday, he merely wanted to get me off his to-do list. (laughs) So I thought, I'll just turn up, 20 minutes. I only put an hour on the car. I remember doing that. My friend wisely went back to the car and put another couple of hours on it. I sat in the waiting room, expecting to be given the all clear, walked into his consulting room to to be greeted by a team of nine professionals sat there about to tell me that it wasn't going to be good news. I was not going to go home Mm -hmm. singing. I was going to be given what you've experienced. I was going to be told um, we're going to cut your tongue out. I my my um, experience of being told was slightly different in that I got the call to come in and when I arrived at reception at Ravemore Hospital in Inverness, they had given me a card which already had about nine other appointments scheduled on it and I thought, that can't be good. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I was shown in to see the consultant, there was a, a nurse uh, accompanying me, sitting far too close, wanting to hold my hand. I thought, this still cannot be good. <laughs> and then they told me it was um, uh, squamous cell carcinoma. Is that Was that the same? Same thing, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting again because he said that long word, which I assume is a Latin word in its origins, and I didn't know what that word meant. I said, can you write it down for me? Yeah. So he wrote it down for me. And I st- I've got the piece of paper now, but I still don't know what that is. It, it is cancer. It's given this other extra name, but it is cancer, and I had no real appreciation of what cancer was at that point. I, I wasn't familiar with it. I'd heard the word now, obviously cancel people that have been in that experience, but I didn't I didn't realise what cancer meant. And did it frighten you that word? I think at the at the time I heard it, it it I think it didn't frighten me as much as the planned treatment. What really shook me to my core when I sat in that room was as I so he sort of sat there and looked at me, and I looked at my tongue, and he said, um, "He said the results are positive. Oh, awesome! You've positively got cancer, you know." So that, <laughs> but again, unbeknown to many people, what happens when we're faced with a diagnosis of this nature? We go into shock, and during that shock, which can last up to a couple of minutes, during that shock, we cut off the thinking part of our brain. It's part of our survival instinct. So in that couple of minutes, I sort of flashed round to the left-hand side of me where this group of eight other people were and said, he said, these are the people that are going to sort of do the work. So I said to the first guy, who are you? He said, well, I'm a surgeon. I said, what, what, you know, I, I said, that's it. He said, I'm a surgeon. I said, have you done this before? He said, yeah. I said, are you good at it? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, how many times have you done it? He said, I've done it about 30 times. I remember thinking, for me, that didn't sound like a lot. You know, mm-hmm. 30 times, that's like a month. I don't, and then I said to the second guy, so who are you? And they had the blue surgical yeah. clothing on. Who are you? I'm a surgeon. What are you doing? I'll be operating. I'll be doing the surgery too. Yeah. I said, I've got two surgeons. And then the consultant in front of me said, no, you'll have three. So I got the third person. Who are you? She said, I'm the oncologist. I said, what do you do? She said, well, I can provide radiotherapy if needed. I said, what's that? You're going to zap it out with a, with a laser beam? 
She said, yes, she said, but unfortunately, if I do my work, it will leave you with lots of ongoing damage to your mouth, particularly your saliva glands. So she said, in a nutshell, Paul, she says, you don't want what I've got to offer. Mm. I just looked her straight and asked, well, you can go out then. I didn't say I swore at her. I said, well, you can, you can do one. So she upped and smiled and shook my hand and walked out. Fourth person was um, a dietary specialist. Said, Who are you? I'm your dietitian. I said, what are you? What, what for? He said, because I'll help you to learn to eat again. That was the moment I'm thinking... That's when it dawned. I mean, they're, they're going to cut my tongue out. That thing in your mouth that you've always had, we've all got one. We don't particularly notice it, but yeah, you eat with it. And it's the fifth person, right? Who are you? I'm your speech therapist. And by then, the, that's, the, that's when you got that tummy movement. You got that realisation of, my God, I'm not going to be able to speak. It's my speech. Now, as a talking therapist, when somebody says, we're going to have to teach you to speak again, I mean, that was, I'll never, ever forget that moment. I'll never forget the whole experience, but I won't forget that particular moment. Then I went to the next person, then went to the next person, then went back to him. Yeah. He said, um, have you got any questions? I said, yeah, so I'm a speak. I'm a talking therapist. What about my speech? And he looked me straight in the eyes. I was such a good man. He looked me straight in the eyes. He said, um, so Mr. Roebuck said, the way we calibrate your um, speech after the surgery is based on your telephone manner. He said, you may need to prepare yourself to be unintelligible on the phone. So as quick as a flash, as sharp as any good comic. I said, well, don't worry about that. I don't use the phone very much anyway. And nobody <laughs> laughed. Nobody smiled. And my neck, he said, more questions. I said, well, yeah, I said, um, when are you going to do it? He said, oh, we do these on a Tuesday. <laughs> I can do you a week on Tuesday. Mm. And that's, and so from 11.30, when I was sat in the waiting room with my one-hour car parking ticket, it's not even 10 to 12 yet. Yeah. And I've been told they're going to be a 12, an 8 to 12-hour operation. They're going to cut my tongue out. I'm not going to be able to eat. I'm not going to be able to talk. It was just, I mean, you can't make it. I, I'm quite resourceful, but you, you, nothing prepares you for that, as you know, because you've experienced the same. But it just, it just provokes such a deep sense of fear, and everything comes into play. Your job, your family, your social circle, your kids, my voice. Imagine not having a voice. I mean, imagine not having a voice. It's a... It's an incredible, it's barely believable. Someone says, a week on Tuesday, you may not be able to talk. I thought, well, I've got a hell of a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to talk to for? It's, for it's inter- that, that experience is interesting, Paul, of all the experts in the same room. In my case, there was a week between my diagnosis and seeing the consultant and being told about this horrendous operation where they were going to, you know, cut a piece of your tongue and stitch on a bit of your arm and, you know, live like Frankenstein, you know. It's really um, But I only had the one consultant and he was very down to earth and he always made me laugh. But it, the best thing he said to me was, you've given your problem to me, it's for me to solve now. And unlike you, it wasn't next Tuesday, the operation, it was to be after Christmas. So it was a month between my diagnosis and my operation. And during that month, 
I kind of welcomed it because I could adjust to the the fact that I was going to change. Whereas, and you mentioned your family, my wife desperately wanted it to happen quicker because in her imagination, this cancer was eating away at me day by day. That, you know, uh, absolutely, but, and that's the bit that I didn't understand. So ultimately, mm -hmm. I, I delayed my surgery until October. This was mm -hmm. August, so I went and I had no... I do now understand cancer significantly more. It, it didn't occur to me that this thing's growing and evolving. So mm -hmm. I should have gone straight in and had the treatment, but I had other commitments. I had other plans. I had lots of other things I wanted to fulfill. And, it, and I got a second opinion because I just felt obliged to. So, yeah, ultimately, as it got to within a week or so of that surgery, that's when it dawned on me. I've burned eight or nine weeks here that I might have better be, it might have been better otherwise getting the surgery done more promptly. Mm -hmm. Now, in the videos I watched of you telling this story, you were um, coming across as very strong. I mean, I know we all present an image of ourselves on video, but you were very strong up until the after your surgery, you know, when you were really flat out on a hospital bed, you know. But was that strength that you were portraying for yourself or was it for your family? Because I also saw you say, here are the positives to look at. One of the things is this is happening to me and not a family member. I don't think I could have coped. It was a family member. And I that resonated with me quite a lot. Wow, you've seen and in and digested more of my video content than I realised, so thank you for that. Um, no, the videos were not a front. I wasn't pretending. The videos to start with were I'd recently moved from a corporate IT career into counselling and mind work, so I started to do a lot of videos to promote healthy, healthy mind, healthy mental welfare, how you strengthen the mind, how the mind gets contaminated with events and so on, so Part of my daily routine was often to just to cut a video. I might be at the gym, I might be out shopping. So filming my surgical journey was just commonplace. Switch the phone on, say a few words and move on. And I, I also know, believe and understand that the mind is a very powerful thing. Our unconscious mind can lead us to dark, uncomfortable and negative places. So I naturally said, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to believe it's going to be positive. I'm going to believe in a, fit, a good outcome. So all of that content that you saw was heartfelt and genuine. We're going to go into this a bit like yourself. I think when you've been given that diagnosis, people often hear oh, you're strong and you're this and you're that. But the, the raw truth is I had zero choice. I mm. had no option. There wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't any other way I could. Being weak and soft wouldn't have made it any more or less painful. I couldn't not have the surgery. So I sort of had no choice. You've just got to be, you've got to call on those reserves that you brought up and that are built up from being maybe a Yorkshire lad. Who knows? Let's go back to the hospital experience itself. The thing that I was fearing, I, I suppose I had trust in the authority figures. You know, I, I trusted they would get it right. And there was only a little bit of doubt in my mind. In fact, it was only 5% doubt because the consultant said he had a 95% success rate. So I, 
rather than focus on the 5%, yeah. I focus on the 95%, being a glass half full kind of person. The thing that really worried me, though, was when he said you will be uh, under general anaesthetic for nine hours. And I just thought that sounded like an awful long time to be out of it. And I thought, well, I don't know what that's going to be like. You know, that was the thing that I worried about for myself. And again, let's come back to this thing about family, because the thing that was really annoying me through the process is it was always about me. And I always had to ask any kind of doctor or nurse, please go and have a word with my wife, you know, because they, she's going through it much harder than I am. I feel that like I'm in control of my destiny. I know I wasn't. But for your wife to thinking all sorts, what's it going to be like? What's he going to be like? Will I have to look after him? Will he make wow, it? You know, yeah. all of that, you know. With, what were your thoughts about family or what were your family saying to you? I think at the time, I, um, this can provoke, this can provoke a lot of emotion because mm -hmm. um, yeah, my wife and children My friends. It's a question I've never been asked, so it, it causes me to reflect. These people are profoundly strong in their own. In their own right, I felt that I was the only person that mattered. Everybody surrounded me to provide safety, care, love, compassion, humour. Um, my best friend. My best friend travelled down. Wow, it's just tough stuff. Um, I'm sorry, would you like me no, to... No, 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 not at all. This is important stuff that I've obviously, obviously emotion. I've never quite let go. So my best friend came to see me um, and he just sat there taking the mickey out of me for two hours. I couldn't talk, I couldn't walk, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't speak, I couldn't eat. It was only day two. So, you, I mean, day two, yeah. you're as close to comatized. I think you're going to be in a profound pain. And he showed absolutely no sympathy whatsoever. He had, but that's my best mate. Yeah. It was that same best mate that when I first got my diagnosis set about uh, cr scrolling through the entire internet, looking for content about people who survived successfully. I never did that. He did that. He kept sending me videos and he, he's, he's a very caring man, but he's a rough, tough Mancunian. Um, so his approach is to keep you happy, keep you smiling. So that's what yeah. he did. But then there's also a really special person in the village that I live in, and she's a chef. She's a private chef. Um, and she used to bring and leave. She used to bring and leave cooked food for me and my wife on the doorstep. So there'd be a cooked meal every day, every day, every day without fail. It would be... And what she'd also done, she'd worked out what I could chew, what I could eat. what Because as you recall, you're getting back to eating is a lengthy month after month after month process. So it started with pureed, then went into things a little bit more chopped up, then into further things. And 
She didn't know me. This this lady didn't didn't know me. She wasn't a friend. She was just a, an acquaintance in the village that I seen the pub occasionally. And every day she brought us food. And there can be no no higher expression of love and compassion than to feed you because obviously Kieran was my wife was at hospital with me. She was doing other things with me. Yeah. So for someone to provide um, just the basics, essentials of a warm meal that was fabulous food, it was always beautiful, beautiful food. So, yeah, it's an interesting question that provokes. I started that answer by sort of assuming I was, it was sort of my journey, but you don't realise how people came around you to to give you the resources and the energy and the love and the belief that you were sort of going to get through this. Absolutely. Um, So that, that immediate point after surgery, that was your lowest point. I think certainly in the videos, that was your lowest point. You were, I think it was a shock to your system. I don't think you were probably expecting to feel quite as bad. No, No, Um, I think that did shock me. I think the main memories would be, all the wires and pipes and tubes and things taking your fluids away. And yeah. This arm was, wasn't was functional. I couldn't move. I couldn't, I think I could move my eyelids. That felt like all I had. And I had a button, which I thought was a morphine button, but it was actually the button for the nurse's station. So I'm mm-hmm. pressing that there running every two minutes. My wife came into the room as, as I came to, and I remember looking at her as she walked in and she literally collapsed in front of me she just slid down the wall like a sack of potatoes she wasn't prepared for whatever she saw i mean look the images are yeah they'll look like a car crash victim you you are literally blood everywhere and bruising everywhere and i think the first day was was a whiteout i'd reacted badly to the medication that they sedate you with so i then went into a hot sweats thing while i tried to come to but one thing nobody prepared me for was this tracheostomy, this breathing pipe. Mm-hmm. I spent the whole of the first night in acute pain, half-drugged with this pipe that meant I couldn't read, not able to talk because she can't talk, not able to write because there was nothing to write with. My wife hadn't stayed. So if anybody does hear this video or see this podcast and they go through this process, never leave a client never leave a patient on their own for the first night after this surgery it is literally impossible to survive i actually wrote on an ipad i've got it somewhere to hand i wrote on an ipad i've got it on tuesday the surgery was monday so tuesday morning i think it was i need this pain to stop will somebody let me go to coventry and die Mm. that's what i wrote so that's perhaps an, uh, an illumination of I've had the positivity, I've had a positive spin on it, but at that lowest point, death felt like a an easier outcome, a less yeah. painful outcome. And I think, you know, the day two was a bit better. I walked. I think day three, you know, I think I, I, can't, I don't think I did much, but I think it was day two when I got my first stop and got washed and a young nurse washed me. I, again, I felt incredibly grateful that somebody yeah. got me clean and 
And then the days went by, and every day my wife used to bring in a um, like a little doll on a stick, like a matchstick doll, and we used to peg them on top of the notice board in my room, and we knew when that got to 10, I'd be able, or 12, whatever it was going to be, 10 to 12 days, I'd be able to leave hospital. So that yeah. was the... That was the counting, my, but the first five days, the first, first two days, uh, I wouldn't wish on anybody, up to day five or six. And then, of course, day six for me was the day when they tested my speech, and my son happened to be at hospital that day, just with me, and the speech therapist came in, and they took the pipe out of my neck, and if you took the pipe out and put your finger on it, it will allow you to use your voice box. So she said, we're going to try your speech today unbeknown to me so she unplugged the pipe and she said put your finger on so I put my finger on she says speak and I said the alphabet mm -hmm. I said the alphabet and I could hear it I could hear the word I could hear the letters and at that moment and that was the so this thing started in that consulting room when I was told by those nine people, that's when it started. And when it finished was when I heard those words. And I recorded a video on that, um, thanking my family and thanking my wife. And yeah. that was the end then. That was the end. I started on that first meeting and the day I heard my voice at that minute, it was all bets were off then. That was then it finished. All I had to do was get better. Great. All I had to do was get back to work, get back to gym, eat food, do my mouth exercises, keep clean, keep healthy, smile a lot, sleep a lot. It was, it was, when I heard, as soon as I heard my voice on day six, that's it, I'm, I've done it, I'm through it, I, it's done. It's not obviously the truth, but emotionally and mentally for me, yep. that's when the job was done. Any other high points? For me, uh, well, I found I could... I could speak if I was shouting, <laughs> or I, rather I could be understood if I was shouting, which was rather bizarre in, in a hospital, wow. hospital room with other people, you know, so it was, yes, I'm here, <laughs> you know, absolute nonsense, you know. Um, the highest point for me is when they let me have a cup of tea. Oh, wow. Because you're so thirsty. I know you've been given fluids. It's just not the same as being able to drink. But when they said, okay, you can have a lukewarm cup of tea, it was the best cup of tea I'd ever had in my life, you know. And it was, again, those little waypoints on the way to being normal again. Yeah. But focusing on the joy, you then were on the road to recovery. How long did it take the speech therapy before you felt, hey, yeah, this is, people can understand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm okay to, to go out in the real world again. I went back into counselling. I sat in the chairs behind me with my first client seven weeks after surgery. So I felt sufficiently confident in my language skills or my vocabulary to strike up and hold a meaningful and quite important conversation mm -hmm. with clients. That was seven weeks in. I was back at the gym within six weeks. So I got myself fit before surgery. I thought I'm going to maintain that. The speech is a really, a really, um, it's a really interesting subject. You're the first person I've heard who's got the same tongue as me. Yeah. 
you're the first person I've seen on a camera speaking with it, and I can only just see yours. It, I, now, I assume mine is on the front of my face, bigger than my forehead. I assume my <laughs> my belief is that you can all you can see is this big tongue flap. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still very not so now. For, the, for those listening, I should explain yeah, that's maybe, not what I'm seeing. <laughs> but that to me is that flap that cut off your wrist and stick in your mouth. Yeah. You, you feel it all day. Every day, you and I feel in our mouths a yeah. foreign object, and we have done yeah. since that moment, and we'll do until the day they send us upstairs. So yeah. it's, ne- it's always there. It's a constant. I think for my speech, I I think I'm right in saying I've never apologised for it, ever. I've never said. I've had a lot of people say, pardon, 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 particularly McDonald's. Yeah. If I go to McDonald's, they can never hear me. I don't know, but I don't know <laughs> if that's just McDonald's microphones. I had a case where I was out with a client. I was with him at breakfast today, funnily enough. I was out with a client. I've been working with this client as a coach for nine months we went for lunch one day to a italian restaurant we sat down to eat and i started scooping up the start or whatever it was he said um are you not going to take your chewing gum out yeah yeah he said are you going to take that chewing gum out i said it ain't chewing gum bear in mind i've been seeing this guy every month for nine months yeah so what's that in your mouth i said it's my surgery which surgery yeah from my tongue. Which tongue? I said, I had tongue surgery, I had cancer. Really? I said, yeah, didn't you know? I just assume yeah. people see it and know that it's this and they know it's cancer and know that I've got a, a sort of fabricated tongue. And this guy, to this day, tells the same tale. And says, I, he said, I worked with the Paul for nine months. I had no idea that he'd had any work done in his mouth. I just thought it was chewing a piece of gum. Yeah. So as I say, I've never apologised for it. I've never, I probably overcompensate for it in some ways, but I'm not sure if I do. I think I sometimes speak with my hand over the front of my mouth to sort of shield people seeing it, particularly mm. new counselling clients for that first three or four minutes while they adjust to the environment. I, I think I sort of put my hand over the front of my face just mm-hmm. so they don't have any more shocks other than coming to see a strange chap to talk about counselling. So... Um, yeah. Aside from that, I think nowadays, it, if people can't understand me or if people didn't quite hear me, I'll just repeat it. And very rarely do I get cross. No, I think we're we're both quite critical of our own speech at times, aren't we? Uh, uh, I think it's the difference between people who knew us before and the people who met us afterwards. The people who have met us afterwards, we just sound that's the way we speak. Yeah. People before might say, "Oh," in my case, again being hypercritical, you think. Sometimes I'm a bit slovenly. I've really got to um, put effort into it sometimes to be to enunciate clearly. Well if said. Yeah. yeah. If I'm tired in the afternoon or I've uh, been running or doing some exercise, I'm not expecting it to come out very well. But sometimes I, I feel myself mumbling. Uh, you know. I, I agree, hundred percent. I think you do that with family at the end of the. I notice my wife. Yeah. Sometimes that's just listen twice you've had a long day at work i think you do get tired i think our our muscle in our tongue is working twice as hard as everybody else's so when he does get to eight o'clock he yeah i think we just get lazy i think it, 
it just made that bit more of a rest. But I have to say, I've had a couple of good compliments, which was one, a, a colleague of mine said, Jeff, I don't know why you're worried, because you speak better than ever. You were always a mumbler, you know, and <laughs> now you... And I was doing a, a, a thing last year, a book festival, and I met someone who was at the book festival a few months later, and she said, oh, I really enjoyed the, the book festival, but she said, I'm quite old, she said, and I'm a bit deaf. She said, and you were the only person I could actually hear. Uh, it was like... <laughs> And I thought, great. I said, I said, oh, well, my my uh, my tongue problems weren't an issue for you then. She said, what tongue problems? Yes. I didn't know exactly. <laughs> it's just incredible. I think yeah. it's I think it's part of our self consciousness. I think we, you know, we carry it. I'm sure ninety nine percent of the people that we come into contact with have absolutely no idea. Yeah, just not. Paul, I could talk to you all day about this, and uh, and hopefully one day I'll get to meet you. But I thought we'd end with a bit of fun, if that's okay for you, because part of my speech therapy involved uh, they gave me tongue twisters to to read, and what I would do, I've got a, I've got a kind of hill where I live here in Inverness, and I would go up this hill on my own and and say these out loud with yeah. nobody, but only the sheep to hear me. <laughs> so I sent you one. Uh, a twister of twists. I don't know if you've got it to hand. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. But now, do you want to go first or second? <laughs> you know this because you've spoken. Yes, of course. I've been practicing for years. For all the sheep in, in Maness. <laughs> you go first. Okay. A twister of twists once twisted a twist. The twist that he twisted was a three twisted twist. If in twisting the twist, one twist should untwist. The untwisted twist would untwist the twist. See, T's were always my problem. That, mine are S's, I think. Uh, well, it depends what combination, I There's only certain letters that, um, that I can't quite graph. Right, here we go. A twister of twists once twisted a twist. The twist that he twisted was a three-twisted twist. If in twisting the twists one twist should untwist, the untwisted twist would untwist the twist. I think you might have just edged that there, Paul. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Paul, been brilliant to speak to you. It's been not just uh, good for me to speak to you for this podcast, but like you, you are the first person who's ever had the same experience as me that I've spoken Likewise. to. Likewise, as Likewise. well. So yeah, you're the uh, first person that I've sort of spoken to at this level with exactly yeah. the same backstory. It's fascinating. So if you're ever in Inverness, uh, come yeah. and see me. Guarantee that, definitely. <laughs> and I'll have 10 more of these tongue twisters for you to do. <laughs> and see if you can do that after a few pints. So, <laughs> Paul, thank you very much. Too, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Keep in touch. Ways to Wellbeing is produced in Inverness, Scotland by Partnerships for Wellbeing, a registered charity. To find out more about our services, go to p4w.org.uk.